Welcome to the Crosslands Church Podcast, our mission to help you experience the life with God you've been missing. And now, a message for you. There was a preacher at the turn of the last century, early 1900s, who said that every preacher must preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And he was talking about, we preach from Scripture, but we have to connect it to our culture. And last week, we started with the Bible. What is the gospel message? Came to the place where we understood that the message of Jesus adjusts to its context. And so we, we talked, we'll go very briefly, we talked about how the, the, the guilt, forgiveness, heaven message that it kind of worked, it was appropriate throughout the Middle Ages, the medieval times, all the way up through the modern times is no longer appropriate because people aren't asking those questions anymore. The message, that message has become obsolete. And so today, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to start with the newspaper in our hand first before the Bible and talk about the problem in our culture, and then look at how does the story of Jesus answer the questions in our culture. Just as a, as a bit of a reminder, um, although this message changes, how the application of the good news changes, the center of the good news is always Jesus. Jesus, uh, his, his rescuing act for humanity. It's, it's how that applies that changes. And the reason why the questions are different is because the way our culture today in the West thinks is completely different than 30, 40, 50 years ago. The very questions of cultural understanding of existence has actually changed. So that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, I, I will remind you that uh, you, can, you can text or uh, to my phone if you have the number, or you can put it on the YouTube chat. If you have any questions or comments uh, that are relevant to the message today, uh, I'll try to respond to those live towards the end of the message. And, um, and so how has this whole thing changed? The modern mindset was obsessed with the question, is this true? And the postmodern mindset has completely different sets of questions. And there are two primary questions. And this series is dealing with one of them. As you saw in the opening video, the question is, who am I? It's a question of identity. Who are you? How are you defined? How do you understand yourself? How do you relate? How do you exist in relationship to other people? And there are, um, there are two postmodern assumptions that feed the answers to those questions. I'm going to look at them Hopefully fairly briefly. And the first, I do want to say that if you're older, okay, so if you're my age and older, uh, sometimes postmodernism can be threatening. But the reality is there is some truth to these assumptions. And the first one is this, that as human beings, we are biological mechanisms. Our bodies are, are biological. And, and we all believe this. And whether you say you do or you don't, your belief is demonstrated by your action. So if you make an appointment with your doctor, you're willing to do that, you're willing to take medication, you're willing to submit to corrective surgery, you are acknowledging that, there, that your body is, is, the foundation of it is, is physical and biological. It works according to biological rules and processes. Whether you're a hardcore young earth creationist, whether you're a skeptical agnostic, whether you're a committed atheist or a theistic evolutionist, it doesn't matter. Everybody understands that our physical selves are biological. It's part of nature. This is true. This is a true assumption. Our bodies are meat machines. Now, people dispute sometimes the nature of that. Some people would say we're accidental biological mechanisms. We're just the accidental byproduct of a, of a, of a godless universe. Um, other people say 
We are, but that's not all we are. In fact, there's, there's increasingly, when you talk to people that are not followers of Jesus, increasingly people, I, I believe, have an innate sense of purpose and direction and meaning. And, and because of an unwillingness to ally or associate with a, an institution like they would consider a religion, they would appeal to something called the universe. Right? The universe has provided this opportunity for me. The universe is providential. The universe gives me direction. And so there's this, there's this idea that, yes, we're all biological, but there's more than just biological. And again, some dispute that and say, no, it's all we are. Now, what do we do with biology? What do we do with nature? If we are natural, if we are natural beings, we're part of nature, again, this is true, what do we do with nature? Well, we ex exist in harmony with it, hopefully, but we also use it for our benefit. So you cut down a tree to build a house, use rocks at a, at a more, uh, at a smaller level, we actually manipulate molecules and atoms to make things like plastic and, and blow it up to create energy and so on. So the material world is something that is here to be used. And if we're smart, and this is another sort of postmodern perspective, we, we do this in a sustainable way, okay? So that's the first assumption. We are biological mechanisms. I was having a conversation with somebody uh, online just this past week, and somebody who is a, a pretty staunch atheist, and the, the question came down to, what is truth? And, and I asked him, well, what's your view? What's your view of what is true? And he, he said something like, uh, whatever is, is, can be scientifically verified. And I, and I said, do you mean empiricism, which means only what you can measure is true? And he says, well, not just, because you can make mathematical, you can have mathematical truths that are provable. I said, okay. And I, and, I, um, and I asked him this, what about how I feel? Like, I can't prove that it's true. I could be lying. But if I feel angry, I know that's true, even though I couldn't prove it to somebody else. And he said, well, that's just, that's just subjective. Yeah, but it's true. I, I know it's true. And that's as far as we go with the conversation. I mean, I didn't, you know. This is where postmodern ends up. Postmodernism, because the postmodernism has become skeptical or even cynical towards truth claims, especially large-scale truth claims. And, and one reason is because people select facts, select data, the ones they want, in order to push an agenda, whether they do it consciously or unconsciously. So uh, little Trevor is in the schoolyard, um, Austin's been bullying him for a long time, and, and finally uh, there's a confrontation, and, um, and, and Austin takes a swing at Trevor and, and misses, and Trevor sort of holds his foot out, and Austin goes to the ground, and he goes to the teacher crying. So Austin, the bully, is telling the teacher, when the teacher's trying to sort it out, I didn't even touch Trevor, and he tricked me. That is true. It's a fact. And Trevor says, yeah, but he, he's a bully. He went to hit me. Okay, so they both have a different set of facts, and they ignore the ones that don't fit their story in order to push an agenda. And the postmodern's claim is that people do this all the time, not just individuals, but even worse is when institutions do it. So governments, I can't trust my government because they're only sharing the information that furthers their agenda. Or an institution like a corporation, evil capitalist corporations or whatever. They only use the information, they leverage it, they sort it out and select it, select it very carefully in order to push their agenda. There's no such thing as neutral information. And they would see the church as an institution that does the same thing. And part of this is inevitable because we do it consciously 
sometimes, and we do it unconsciously. So there's a postmodern accusation towards modernism. The, the new way of thinking has a criticism of the old way of thinking. And the new way of thinking says that you're limited to what you know by your perspective. So the, post, the, the moderns, all the, you know, our, our, our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents, that culture had a, had a profound sense of optimism and confidence that what we know is the truth. And the next generations are saying, well, but you can't see everything. You don't know all the facts. You have limited perspective. And so how can you know that that's the truth? And, and there's also the suspicion that what you are claiming is the objective truth is really just pushing your agenda. I want to acknowledge something here, because I'm, I'm a little bit older. I'm, we're sort of in that halfway between modern and postmodern. That accusation is true. The postmodern accusation that your claim to objective truth is limited by your perspective is true, and it's also true that people leverage the facts for their power agendas. And so that's a legitimate complaint by the postmoderns. So the first assumption, post, uh, assumption is that we are biological mechanisms, and the second assumption, this is where we get, this is where we end up with, is that what we feel is the only trustworthy truth. That's what postmoderns tend to believe. Because I can't, I know there are facts, I trust some of them because my microwave works, but the only thing I can be completely confident about is how I feel. I can't prove it, but I can be confident about that. It's, it's non-material. So the, the, the modern people, the modern generation has told us that the facts are real. Anything else is subjective, and so it's opinion, it's private, and it's personal. Your emotions are private and personal. Your religious beliefs are private and personal because you can't prove it. All of those things are private and personal. And then the postmoderns come around and say, yeah, but that's the only truth I know. That's the phrase, this is, this is my truth. This has become a popular phrase. It was on one division on Friday night. This is my truth. Because the idea is I can't trust somebody else's truth. So I know what's true for me. This is my story. And so here are the implications. Here, here's the result of these two assumptions. Our bodies are biological mechanisms which are part of nature and we use nature to our benefit. Okay? And the other one is the only thing that I can be confident about as truth is what I feel. And so what happens is our physical bodies become canvases through which we express who we feel we are. This has happened longer than people realize because we dress, the clothes we choose are seen as an expression of who we are. But people also express themselves. They leverage our physical bodies, part of nature, remember something that we use, to express ourselves through tattoos or piercings. And some people go as far as to say, my, my gender is determined by how I feel, and, and I'm going to use my body, transform it to match how I feel. This is what's going on in our culture. And older people are standing by, standing back, sometimes on a plastic hip or a knee, looking on with disapproval through surgery-corrected eyes. We're all doing it, which is done in different ways. We're using our body as an expression of who we are. This is where identity comes from, I believe, in our present generation that we're surrounded with. And there's a huge 
problem with that. The huge problem with that is that our feelings change. If your identity comes from your feeling, there's something circular about that because how you feel is partly determined by your biology. If you don't get enough sleep, it changes your feelings. If you eat improperly or uh, irregularly, it changes how you feel. Take medications, changes how you feel. Your circumstances can change how you feel. We're not consistent enough. We're not isolated and independent so that we're immune to the circumstances around us. If your favorite pet dies, it changes how you feel. So does that change how you are? And that's why it's such a difficult question in our culture to answer. Who are you? What's your identity? And because our bodies are tools to manipulate, tools to express ourselves, what has become for many people a default response to these feelings is we actually change the feelings themselves by manipulating them with drugs. I mean, there, there, there are people that have struggled with things like clinical anxiety, clinical depression, and sometimes there's something physically wrong in the brain that can be corrected with medication. Okay, and that's appropriate. But there are people that, when they feel sad, they call it depressed, and we correct the feeling with medication, sometimes without asking the question, why do I feel this way? What, what happens if I correct what is making me feel this way? And so we default to change the body, because it's, who I, because it's an expression of who I am, but who I am is determined by how I feel. It, th this is like... I think this is a, it's, it's a circular dead-end street because it becomes impossible to answer the question, who am I really? So there is a, there's a competing message that comes from the story of Jesus. And here's where we go from newspaper to the Bible. The Bible says that we're made on purpose. We're not an accident. That our identity is not tied to how we feel. But there's, there's a purpose and a meaning to our identity. We see this in Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. God had a purpose to create humanity. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. There, there's a couple of things going on here. First thing is that we're made on purpose. We have a purpose and identity that comes from being the image of God. And the second thing is, yes, although we're biological mechanisms, we're not just biological me mechanisms like every other creature on the earth. We have a specific position and role to play. Now, I do want to say that if you're going, well, yeah, of course, that's obviously true. Um, a postmodern person who rejects objective claims to truth, particularly when they're perceived to be part of an institution, that's a whole lot of words. That means just because you say it's in the Bible doesn't mean they believe you it's true. You're not going to get very far if somebody says, I'm, I identify by how I feel, and so you open up a Bible and stick it in front of your face and say, look at this. They don't care. That's not what works. We're not here to win an argument or a debate. Because remember that the, the facts we use are, are selectively chosen to further an agenda. And people are very skeptical when it comes to that. Whether they believe the Bible to be true or not, they say, well... I mean, if they're being polite, they might say, well, that's your truth. That's what you believe to be true. They might even say, that's a very convincing argument. I'm glad it works for you, and turn around and keep doing their thing. There's a thinker in the, um, across the 1500s and 1600s named Blaise Pascal, one of the 
most intelligent people that ever lived. Um, he was one of those, you know, he's a physicist and biologist and philosopher and theologian. And um, Blaise Pascal, Pascal said this, make Christianity attractive. He actually uses the word religion in the original quote, but in that cultural context, there only really was one religious option, which is Christianity. He says, make it attractive, make good men wish it were true, then show that it is. He says, basically he's saying you don't dominate people with an argument, you make the message attractive. You intrigue people with the message. We're here to, the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experiential, right? It's not an intellectual argument. We're here to intrigue people not to prove things. And so in, in, in a culture where, especially if you're a little bit older, it looks like everything's changing so fast. We don't necessarily grasp the rationale behind the, the, the reason why people make the decisions they do, and it just seems to make no sense, and we, it's easy to be threatened by this. But the reality is, it's not a threat, it's an opportunity. As long as we understand what the questions are and know how to respond to those questions. It's not about confronting people or correcting people, proving them they're wrong, that never goes over well. But we can have a conversation with people about identity. We can give an answer to the hope that we have balanced with word and action. What that means is when you live your life, there comes a point where people notice your hope, your confidence, your peace, and your joy. Sometimes we do that, we make the mistake of not following it up with the words. And we just live our lives and just people think we're nice. But we, we engage with people in conversation. We engage with people life on life. And this is what First Peter says in 3.15. He says, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. It starts with Jesus at the center. Okay, the story of the good news is always has Jesus at the center. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain. In this context, explain the identity question. It's a question people have. Who am I? Who are you? How do you know who you are? What's your story? People love talking about their stories. Man, you want to have a conversation with somebody, ask them to talk about themselves. People love talking about themselves. It's, it could be as simple as, tell me why you chose that tattoo. And watch people go, they'll just go, right? What does it mean? Most people get a tattoo because it has meaning to them. And there's a story there. It, if you can have a conversation about your life story, it's essential that you know your story and how it fits in the Jesus story and how Jesus' story is lived out through your story. What is my story? So that when you have a story conversation with somebody, because that's where the identity sort of comes from, now you can demonstrate Jesus through that. For those who, um, who would say, I believe the universe is providential, the universe gives me direction, there's a great opportunity to, to give a name to that. And I used these verses last week. Acts 17, 22, 23. Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I noticed that you were very religious in every way, for I was walking along and saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. People, some people in our culture attribute providence and hope and direction to the universe. And it's a very small step to say, got a name. Now, I mean, yeah, it's theologically accurate because God's not the universe. But to be able to introduce people to someone rather than 
correcting their opinions. Let me introduce you. Let me introduce you to experience him. And we, again, we don't like the idea, the phrase, my truth, your truth. We used to call that a testimony. This is my story. This is my testimony. This is my truth. There's a, there's a direct access point to the questions in our culture. And it's something that we used to do in the church quite regularly, hearing testimony, having testimony time, in a conversation with somebody, what's your story? What's the narrative by which you understand who you are? Our culture is all about the story. I saw this tweet yesterday. It said this, your self-talk will determine the course of your life. And self-talk is a choice. You can choose to craft a narrative that empowers you rather than diminishes you. Now, I mean, that's just one sample tweet. You're going to see this sentiment throughout our culture. The idea that who you are comes out of your story, and to a large extent, you choose your own story. If you think about it, there's a lot of pressure on, in that. Better choose the right story. Better self-talk correctly. And we're going to talk about that over the next couple of weeks as well. But this is more than just... It's more than just my story. It's, it's how my story fits into a big, meaningful story. How my story is the story of Jesus as he has worked in my life. How Jesus' story is communicated through our story. It's our story and how we make sense of it that, that communicates who we are. See, that's, that's what can work. Our culture struggles to find adequate tools to answer the question of identity, but we have tools as followers of Jesus that inform identity. It's like the beginning of the service and Wade talked about the song, I, I know who I am in Christ. Jesus does have answers. So rather than just living in a crisis of knowledge, and there is a crisis of knowledge, how do we know things are true? How do we move forward as a society when all truth claims are in question? But we do have an opportunity to answer the identity question. You were made to be more than meat. We were made on purpose. I have a, I think I have a text message. Yeah, it's a good one. Pilate asked Jesus, oh, I just lost it. Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? He had no idea he was face to face with the answer. Okay, that's a very, very perceptive um, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent. It's a very perceptive um, statement relevant to this topic today. Because people will argue about what the truth is. And that's a very modern argument. And there's a lot of Christians that will insist that people in today's culture become modern in their thinking so we can have an argument about what is truth. And a great... I think a better approach is, rather than having an argument about what is truth, we can introduce to somebody, introduce people to somebody who is the truth. Jesus didn't say, I have the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so this is something that someone can experience. And we're afraid of that, because what if they don't experience it? Well, that's not up to you. You can still introduce people to the Jesus who will change their life. Because he is the truth. He's truth personified. He's the way, how to live, personified. He is life. He is the true life, personified. And when you can no longer have an intellectual argument that's going to go somewhere, and there are times you can, but it'll never get somebody across the line, 
but you can introduce them to the person who makes the difference, who is Jesus. And maybe you're watching today and, and you've had these struggles, and sometimes people have intellectual barriers for all these postmodern reasons. Again, there's legitimacy to that. I don't know if I can know that that's true. But I want to introduce you today, if you've, if you've not crossed that line, I want to introduce you to Jesus, to experience him, to know him. And really all it takes is, is a first step towards him. Just like in any relationship, when you, when you meet somebody else, there's always a step in, of vulnerability to open up and say, okay, I'm willing to share part of myself and have you share in return. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who was the first existential philosopher, said that this is essential when it comes to living a true spiritual life. That you can't, you can't put one toe in the water in relationship with God. To really understand, you need to jump in completely. And we find, experientially, and it's something which is backed by Scripture, that when we take a step towards God, he runs towards us. And so I want to encourage you to take the step this morning. How do you do that? It's as simple as ABC. We make this offer every week. And, and if you've never done this, I'm going to invite you to challenge you to take the step towards God this morning. A stands for admit or acknowledge. Admit that your identity is lacking outside this relationship with God. That feelings are transcendent. Or sorry, these feelings are, they, they, they're, now I just lost the word. They change all the time. And so it's, it's not a solid foundation to build a relationship on. But God has one. And so then B is believe, which is not just a, a mental assent. It's not just buying into something I can't prove is true. It's putting your trust, taking the step of vulnerability to trust that God has this for you. And he will meet you as you step towards him. And then C is commit. When God shows himself to you, when he, and I don't mean like visually, but where, where you know you have encountered the living God, you jump in both feet. Say, I'm committing my life completely to you. I'm saying no to the old life. I'm saying no to that, the existence that is so transient because our feelings shift. But having an identity that's rooted in the creator of the universe who made you on purpose. You're not an accidental meat machine. And so I'm going to lead you in a prayer if, if, if you need to make this decision for today for the first time. And, and, you know, don't wait. Why would you waste time trying to find your identity based on feelings? So just follow it, the, the words as I say them. You can, you can repeat them out loud. You, you can make them your own. Pray something like this. Father, God who created me, I admit that my life without you doesn't give me true identity. I'm choosing to take the risk today. I'm choosing to step towards you. As I strive to know you, I also want to be known by you. And I want to commit to you today completely. In Jesus' name. We ask all this. Amen. Now, if this is a decision you're making for the first time today, this is the start of a whole new spiritual life. This is a, a security in, in identity that propels you forward. It's the foundation by which you, you continue to live and continue to grow 
into the identity that God has for you. And this is something that none of us can do alone. And we're going to talk about that in, in two weeks. How we were made to be together. We find identity in being together. And I know that right now we're physically separated, but we're still together in spirit. And so I want to encourage you to connect with us because we want to help you in the spiritual journey. So the best way to connect with us is to go to crosslands.live on your smart device, whatever, and click the follow Jesus button. Give us your contact info because we want to help you with this. We want to give you next steps. We want to show you the, the practices of what it means to be a follower of, of Jesus that people have been doing for, for thousands of years and finding our identity in him. And if you're already a, a follower of Jesus, I want, to, I want to challenge you this week to identify your story. And I know some of you have already done this. But if you haven't, take some time and say, what is my story? How do I know who I am according to the story that I've lived? And where's the intersection with Jesus? How is his story demonstrated in my life? How has he changed my life? Because the good news of Jesus offers better tools for finding your identity than what our postmodern culture has to offer. So where is your story in the Jesus story? Identify that, demonstrate it with your actions, and then pray for the opportunities to share that with somebody else. Life story to life story, and introduce people to the person who is the truth. This is the opportunity that all of us can have. It's, we don't have to be scared or threatened or intimidated by the culture around us because Jesus wants to meet the people in our culture, the people around us that don't know him, even more than we do. So identify your story and pray for the opportunity this week. Be prepared to share the reason that you can be confident in your own identity as a child of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you love people. I thank you that we are not accidental. You have a purpose for each one of us. You desire a relationship with each one of us. And Father, I pray that you would increase our confidence in our identity as your child. And also, Lord, give us an increased awareness of those around us that are, that are struggling with identity, that are grasping at straws, that above anything else, they need relationship with you. Help us to be willing to have the conversations. Help us to be careful not to get into arguments or disputes about truth claims, but to, to get right to introducing people to you, to who you are. And Father, as Cross and Church, Father, I pray you would increase our desire to see people come to know you and to be part of your plan and solution for that. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Crosslands Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or the Google Play Store so that it comes straight to your device. And to find out more about Crosslands Church, you can visit us at crosslands.ca. Join us next week for another message to help you experience the life with God you've been missing.